Welcome to Dissecting the 80s. I am one half of the mega podcasting powers, Trip Lano. With me, as always, a man who can't play the piano and is probably not the guy you want reading your map, but one that's pretty useful on most of life's adventures, the Macho Mandrew. Andrew Lano. When the mega powers explode! I'm talking about the 80s. We're doing a little intro here for our second anniversary episode that you're about to listen to. Just wanted to let everybody know that we're trying on a new thing. Taking a little shot here. This is something we've been talking about doing for a long time and just haven't. So... We hope that you like it. If you don't, we'll be right back to your regularly scheduled program. Hey, I, I wouldn't episode. worry too much whether or not you like it. It's not sticking around. Yeah, it's a one. It's a one-off. There's also like 52 episodes you could. This listen is to this is again. episode the 52nd. So you could you could go back and watch, listen to the first one when we were like didn't know what the hell. Yeah, we were, doing. we're a lot better now than we were then. And our podcasts are about 20 minutes yeah, long. Yeah. We're almost entirely positive this is a OTOTO, one time, one time only situation. Not to say never, because we don't like to say never on this show, but it is unlikely we'll be doing this again. But We, we did want- say we would never watch Ghost. We did, we did. So, never say never, but we, we wanted to try something. So, this is an entirely scripted uh, program you're about to listen to. Everything after this intro has been scripted. We hope that you like it. We hope that you'll share it. It would be really cool if some of the people really involved in Goonies saw it. That would be, like, super-duper triple cool for us. Oh, I thought you meant really involved in Radio oh, Lab. Yeah, Radio Lab too, frankly. Uh, I love Radio Lab, and I thought that that format would make for a fun thing to riff on a little bit. So... So you'll hear us sounding a little different. Uh, we both tried to do our best NPR-style voices for the for the duration of this. I listened to uh, that SNL skit, Sweaty Balls. <laughs> that's in that's preparation. Good, that's good setup. That's good setup. And uh, I definitely dipped a little into ASMR. I think. Yeah, a little bit. A little bit. We hope that you enjoy this. It's going to be a little different. And we will be back with regularly scheduled programming in two weeks. We also told you that we were going to tell you in advance what the next episode is going to be. I'd like to say that we thought ahead and planned this for the synergy of it, but we just happened to like what these episodes are about. So it's purely coincidence that we're starting our third season with episodes one and two. It's a two-parter of season three of Murder, She Wrote, entitled Death Stalks the Big Top. It is conveniently on Netflix for anybody who wants to watch it before they listen to it. Thank you guys so much for being around for the last two years. It's been really, really fun for us to watch our audience become more than just our mom, even though we love her. Yeah. Uh, it's really... Shout out to yeah, moms. moms everywhere. Uh, but it's really cool. So this is a fun thing for us, and we're going to keep doing it, but we want to try something different. And now for something completely different. Dissection is a chum sum of this chum sum of this production dedicated to bringing you the most inter- interesting, engaging, and thought-provoking content. I'm Trip Lano, and I'm Andrew Lano, and this is Dissection. Today's story comes to us from Astoria, Oregon, about 30 years ago. It's a story of eminent domain, of marine salvage rights, and a lost pirate's treasure. Now, this is normally where we say, "Here's a reporter with more," but this week. 
We couldn't resist bringing this story to you ourselves. I mean, how often do you get a chance to do a story involving an actual, honest-to-goodness pirate ship? A pirate called One-Eyed Willie, no less. Hey, this is a family show. I didn't make it up. Well, name jokes aside, we do have one caveat we'd like to add. This story, as all local legends do, has grown and changed over the years. Because we're always in search of the truth, we're going to use archival sources for most of this, the story told at the time of this whole crazy saga. But we do have some original interviews in here as well, and as always, this is the truth as we know it. Our story begins with a prison break. I was making my normal rounds, checking in on the prisoners, when I came across Jake Fratelli, hanging from the ceiling. That's Nathan Brolin speaking to WDT-80, a TV station near Seattle, shortly after this story took place 30 years ago. Our thanks to them for letting us use several of their archive pieces in our story today. We'll call them out as they appear. Brolin attempted to revive Fratelli, but was rewarded with a blow to the head. The blow knocked Brolin out for several minutes. After coming to, he rushed to the front door of the station, joining the other officers chasing Fratelli. I ran over to the door and saw flames all over our parking lot. There was just, there was fire everywhere. That fire had been set by Francis Fratelli, Jake's brother. Agatha Fratelli, known colloquially as Mama, was driving the getaway vehicle. Astoria, Oregon is not a place known for car chases, or, frankly, much crime at all. But on that fall afternoon, the Fratellis led police through an hour-long chase. After careening through dozens of city streets, the Fratellis joined a beach race already in progress. Here's Lou Albano, the race director, also speaking to WDT-80. I have to be honest with you, we didn't even notice what had happened at first. The start of the race is always a little bit hectic and, well, we just didn't catch on that quick. The Fratellis were only briefly in the race, but used the distraction to lose police, returning to an abandoned restaurant they'd been using as a hideout. Before we go on, we need to introduce you to the other players in the story. We're outside the former Astoria home of the Walsh family. Irving Walsh was the head of the Astoria Historical Society and lived here with his wife Irene and two sons, Brand and Mikey. Their sons are a key part of our story. Uh, my brother and his friends, they were always just around, you know. That's Brand Walsh. He's one of the few members of the original crew willing to chat with us. Forgive the audio quality as we were outside the friendly confines of our studio. He's referring to Mikey and his crew of friends. Clark, Mouth, Devereaux, who you might guess, never stopped talking. Richard, Data, Wong, a gadget-obsessed preteen. And Lawrence Chunk Cohen, their heavyset friend. We'll be using their nicknames in this story, as that's how all the local media covered this. On that particular afternoon, it was uh, really a perfect fall day. I'll never forget that. We were all trying to deal with the fact that our parents' house was being taken and we were going to have to move. The Walsh family was one of several in Astoria's goondocks who were facing foreclosure. A local country club was expanding, so several homes in the area were going to be demolished. And after being told to watch my brother, he and his band of idiots went right to causing problems. Mikey Walsh had always been obsessed with the legend of One-Eyed Willie, a pirate who'd allegedly run aground near the goondocks in the 1600s, leaving a treasure behind. Willie's ship, the Inferno, was chased by members of the Spanish Armada who lost track of him in the shallows of the Washington coast. But no one had ever been able to find the ship or proof of the treasure, despite dozens of attempts over the years. And with a father who worked as a museum curator, history was always in the Walsh house. Mikey's bedtime stories were often fantastical, featuring the aforementioned ship and the men who set off in search of gold and glory, like Chester Copperpot, a scavenger who went missing while hunting for the treasure in the 1930s. 
On this fateful day, though, Mikey and his friends had much more than stories in mind. Now, as there was minor property damage and children involved, accounts in the next part of this story differ slightly depending on who's telling it. The kids, as you might imagine, are quick to place blame on each other, particularly on Chunk. But what we're certain of is that in the Walsh's attic, these kids, who'd come to be known as the Goonies, nicknamed after their Goondock neighborhood, ended up breaking a frame map of the area that dated to 1632. That map, along with a strangely shaped skull talisman, ended up setting the Goonies off on their adventure, but not before ditching Brand, who would have put a hitch in their plans. So off my mom goes, and not five minutes later, wham! I'm tied to a chair by four doofuses, and they're out the door. The four took off toward the bluffs indicated on the map, but were sidetracked into a long-abandoned former restaurant, Douglas's, where the Fratelli family was hiding out after running all over Astoria. But before we continue with the Goonies adventure, we need to fill you in on the Fratellis. I shouldn't say this as a psychiatrist, but that family is a deeply disturbed trio. That's Dr. Benjamin Littlepage, a psychiatrist and author of Mama Complex, The Twisted Trial of the Fratelli Family. Littlepage was brought in by the state to evaluate an insanity plea brought forth by the Fratelli's lawyer after their capture. After testifying that the family was fit to stand trial, Mama Fratelli picked up her public defender's briefcase and flung it at Littlepage, who was in the witness stand. Before climbing onto the defendant's table and screaming a torrent of obscenities we couldn't repeat on this broadcast, even if we used the mute button. She missed Littlepage with the briefcase, but she did manage to send court into an early recess that day. Both Jake and Francis Fratelli had a more deep, complicated, emotional connection to their mother than anyone I've ever treated. Both of them would broil over with rage at the merest suggestion that their mother was the reason they found themselves in prison. So there's no doubt in your mind that she's the reason that these two brothers were, were caught up in this life of crime? There's many, many... Many reasons humans commit crimes. In my professional opinion, both Fratellis would have struggled to fit comfortably into society, regardless of their mother's line of work. But it certainly didn't help that they were born to a woman whose entire life was spent committing, planning to commit, or running from crimes. And on top of that, she was emotionally and physically abusive to both Jake and Francis. And, and that wasn't all. Uh, doctor, could you, could you tell us about the, the family secret, the, the one in the basement? I never had much contact with their other brother, but all three of them talked about Sloth, who I'll call Lotney, as that's his birth name. Poor, abused child. Constantly chained up and abused emotionally and physically. It's a disturbing scene, even taking into account the other crimes the Fratellis committed. What, what did you make of Mama Fratelli? She barely wanted to be involved in the session. I think she thought that by spitting at me and causing a scene at each of our sessions, I'd find her unfit for trial. But after nearly a month of that, I finally got her to speak to me by promising a brief family session with Jake and Francis. The three of them sobbed in my office, and she finally opened up a bit about the crime spree they'd been on. There's no doubt in my mind that she deeply loved all three of her children, but that love did not manifest in the way it typically does between a parent and child. You obviously talk about this in your book, Dr. Littlepage, but can you tell us briefly how you would characterize the Fratelli family? They were, without a doubt, the most interesting and yet also most distressing family I've ever encountered in my years of psychotherapy. Now that we know who we're dealing with... Let's join the Goonies back in the restaurant. Now, we don't normally do this, but from here on out, our story does lean toward the absurd, and we want to reiterate that every word we're telling you is the truth, as we've been able to discern it. 
According to numerous media reports, Mikey, Mouth, Data, and Chunk entered this restaurant, encountering first Mama Fratelli, then Jake. Somehow, the four managed to avoid any serious trouble, narrowly getting away from the Fratellis. Outside the restaurant, Bran caught up with the crew, alongside two other kids, Andrea, Andy Carmichael, and Stephanie, Steph, Steinbrenner. After the Fratellis left the restaurant, all seven kids re-entered the abandoned restaurant, eventually finding their way into a secret tunnel accessed through a fireplace, with the exception of Chunk, who was sent to get help from the police. And it's in those tunnels where our story really begins. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode of Dissection is brought to you by fellow chums of this production, Dissecting the 80s. And like us, they appreciate when ads are short. So their message is simple. When you finish this episode, try one of their podcasts. Available at DissectingThe80s.com or wherever you download podcasts. When we last left you, we were about to head into the tunnels underneath Douglas's restaurant, and we're actually approaching them now. We got permission from Astoria to come down here to the basement, even though this building has been condemned, but we can't venture into the tunnels as those have been blocked off for decades. Honestly, it's a miracle those kids survived down there. That's Rich Donner, city spokesman who led us into the basement here. There's not much left of the restaurant above. This whole place is going to be demolished soon. Uh, So, Rich, uh, would you call this a scary place? Absolutely. This area we're standing in now is where the freezer was. They found the body in there. Uh, We we neglected to mention the body to this point in the story. Kind of a big blunder on our part. Better late than never, I suppose. Police didn't know it at the time of the escape, but the Fratellis had killed an FBI agent hiding his body in the freezer. The agent had been investigating the Fratellis and had tracked him to this restaurant where they'd been hiding. And over there is where they entered the tunnels. The story goes that they broke a water jug and followed the water as it poured down into the secret entrance. These tunnels are where the story really takes a turn for the fantastic. See, underneath this town was a massive series of tunnels. We're talking over a mile of linear feet with endless chambers, crisscrossing hallways, and more. And within those tunnels were dozens upon dozens of traps, clearly laid with the intention of stopping anyone from getting too close to the Inferno and One-Eyed Willie's treasure. But no one has ever been able to figure out just who created those tunnels. And if the kid's testimony is true, and we have no reason to doubt it, then the mystery deepens. Because One-Eyed Willie and his crew were all found aboard the Inferno, run through by swords or with musket balls lodged in their ribs. Yet someone, at some point, must have been able to escape, perhaps intending to return later and retrieve the treasure. Speculation abounds as to just who might have been responsible for this, but my hunch is that it was some level of mutiny. It's a distinct possibility. A crew, run aground by the Armada, turns on their leader and succumbs to the elements before being able to retrieve their gold and jewels. After all, a giant pile of treasure is not going to help you much if you're starving to death. But I have another theory, that a small Armada crew continued their chase into the tunnels, killing Willie and his crew and sealing it off, intending to stop on their way home. But with navigation being what it was in the 1600s, they could easily have never been able to find the port again. We'll probably never know what really happened, or who set these traps. But what we do know is that they were elaborate, and very, very dangerous. Even just standing in this basement above the tunnels, it's easy to imagine how terrifying this would have been for those kids. They're afraid about having to move in search of this one last adventure, and now they're being trailed by murderers and fighting hazards both natural and man-made. As they crawled through the tunnel, they found a network of pipes that supplied water to the city. Hoping to use them to signal for help, they shook them and clanged them with rocks, but to no avail. Undeterred, they ventured further into the network of caves and tunnels, eventually encountering the body of Chester Copperpot. At this point, we started to believe in what Mikey had been telling us, that there might actually be a treasure. 
or at least I did. No one had ever been able to find Copper Pot after his disappearance, and here was his body. He even still had his wallet. Copper Pot's body was later removed, and some of his belongings are on display in the Historical Society's collection. While there was no ability to do DNA or dental testing to confirm his identity, all parties involved are fairly certain this is the real Copper Pot. We moved on from Copper Pot, and I moved a rock that was blocking his tunnel entrance. We could see some light behind it. But when I opened up that space, an enormous cloud of bats came clamoring out of it. That swarm of bats tore past the kids, scaring them, but leaving them essentially no worse for wear. We're going to jump back and forth a little bit in telling the story, because while the majority of the Goonies were looking at the body of Chester Copperpot, Chunk was dealing with a problem of his own. There was a blender in the kitchen of the restaurant, and, and the Fratellis had my hand over it with the blades whirring. This, again, is an archival interview from WDT-80 from a 10th anniversary story they did. Chunk was not interested in reliving his adventures and turned down our interview requests. After I saw what they did to that FBI officer, there was just no doubt in my mind that they were putting my hand in that blender. I didn't want to give up my friends, but I was a kid, you know? I, I didn't feel like I had a choice. I, I told them everything. After telling the Fratellis where his friends were, that cloud of bats brand sent loose came tearing into the basement and around Chunk. But even a swarm of bats wasn't enough of a distraction to get Chunk free from the Fratellis. They chained him up alongside their black sheep brother, Sloth, in a basement room. Honestly, the best thing about that whole adventure, even more than the money, was meeting Sloth. He was such a kind, wonderful soul. My family helped take care of him for a while, but eventually he moved into an assisted living place not too far from where we lived. He he really loved it there. He'd help everybody on the staff, and he got to know everybody. More than 250 people came to his funeral. It, it was really something incredible. Back in the tunnels, the Goonies discovered that the baths were in the base of a wishing well. Luckily, some fellow students were at the top, offering a way out and safety. But curiously, they didn't leave. I don't know if it was just all of us had bought into Mikey's story or seen Copper Pot, but it just never crossed our minds. Mikey will tell you he gave us a big, moving speech that turned the tide, but at that point, I don't think there was anything that would have stopped me from seeing this through. What followed was perhaps the most dangerous obstacle the kids faced. In the next room, Mikey used that skull talisman he'd found in the attic as a key, which set off a Rube Goldberg-esque trap involving a cannonball. It rolled all around the room before eventually causing the floor to give way, sending Data plummeting toward a pit of spikes. This is the story from Data's own words, quoted in an article in the Daily Historian shortly after. As I fell, I saw my life flash before my eyes. About halfway down, in a last-ditch effort to save myself, I fired by pinchers of power, which clamped onto the rock above and yanked me up just a foot from the spikes. The pinchers of power, the article goes on to note, were just one of Data's many inventions, a set of joke teeth wired to a slinky-like contraption. It wasn't the only time Data's inventions would come in handy. Just a short time later, with the Fratellis closing in and firing a revolver at the kids, Data would fire back a shot of his own, a slick of oil out of his sneakers. Here he is again in the Daily Historian. The oil slick shoes were one of the toughest inventions to complete. The early versions leaked all over the carpet, and my mom was very upset about it. They were handy, though. Data covered a log with the oil from his shoes, delaying the Fratellis and allowing the Goonies to get away, 
at least for a moment. While the Goonies were attempting to make their escape, Chunk, who'd befriended Sloth while they were tied up together, tried to call the police. We're now going to play you that 911 tape, but we do have to warn you. It's disturbing. Chunk, you see, was a known prankster in town, so Sheriff chalked this up to more shenanigans. A pretty direct boy-cried-wolf situation, but regardless of the prior experiences with Chunk, it might be difficult to hear this. Hello, Sheriff! I'm at the Lighthouse Lounge, and I want to report a murder! Wait a minute, wait a minute, just hold on here. Is that you again, Lawrence? Sheriff, look, it's time I'm telling you the truth. I'm locked inside the basement with this guy. Yeah, like the time you told me about the 50 Iranian terrorists who took over all the Sizzler Steakhouses in the city. Lawrence, get back here! <laughs> Just like that last prank about all those little creatures that multiply when you throw water on them. Lawrence? I've heard it more than a dozen times at this point, but it's still tough to hear that. We should note that Sheriff Plimpton did apologize to Chunk and his family, but the blunder was enough for him to lose his re-election campaign later that fall. The 911 call was used incredibly effectively by his political opponents. Is this the man you want protecting your children when catastrophe strikes? I'm locked inside the basement with this guy. Yeah, like the time you told me about the 50 Iranian terrorists who took over all the Sizzler steakhouses in the city. Paid for by friends of Spielberg for Sheriff. Realizing they were getting no help from the police, Sloth and Chunk set off after the Goonies themselves, climbing down after them. The Goonies had their hands full, too. Here's another excerpt from the Daily Historian, this time with reporter Chris Columbus describing the scene after he was let in by police. In the center of this room is an elaborate pipe organ, constructed almost entirely of bones. The center column, which stretches about 12 feet from floor to ceiling, is a crisscross series of rib cages with a central skeleton impaled on it. The floor is now almost entirely gone, having given way in chunks, according to Andrea Andy Carmichael. And here's Andy's description. On the back of the map was a short song. I'd taken piano lessons years ago, but was definitely out of practice. Not that it would have mattered. The keyboard was a semicircle, so it took me a while to even figure out how to play it. And those struggles led to yet more danger. Every time she hit a wrong note, part of the floor crumbled away. On one of her first mistakes, Mouth nearly plunged to his death. Here's Andy again. It was one of the scariest experiences of my life. Mouth was dangling dangerously from the edge, but everyone pushed me to continue. We had nowhere else to go. Each correct note helped to open a trap door. Slowly... Note by note, the door lowered until it hit a point where the kids could clamber over the top and slide down. <laughs> I'd never go in those tunnels again, but honestly, I'd probably do that slide again in a heartbeat. They slid, landing with tremendous splashes in a pool of water, and finally laid eyes on the inferno. It was a tremendous pirate ship. Rigging still hung from the masts, and the sails looked as if at any moment they'd unfurl, the wind would fill them, and they'd be off. It took me almost a minute before I was able to process that I was actually seeing the Inferno. It was this enormous pirate ship, like something straight out of an old movie. In addition to being awe-inspiring, the ship was also packed to the gills with gold and jewels, enough to buy all the kids' houses, perhaps even enough to buy all the houses in Astoria. But the Goonies wouldn't have much time to savor that victory. After winding their way into the belly of the ship, uncovering wealth beyond their wildest dreams and filling their pockets, the sound of the Fratelli's footsteps thumped overhead. They seized the children, making them turn out their pockets to find the jewels and gold, then attempted to send them to their deaths. 
Here's Andy from WTL8 news footage on the day the kids were found. After disposing of the kids, the Fratellis attempted to raid the ship of its treasures, but they were woefully unaware that there was one final trap set, one that would end up sending the Inferno back out to sea with most of the treasure on board. Most, but not all. Mikey had stashed a small bag of jewels that the Fratellis had missed, with more than enough value to cover the homes of the kids. It's a remarkable story, and luckily for us, several local media outlets were on scene to see the kids reunited with their families after having been missing for an entire day. Here's WTL8 reporter Steve Spielberg describing the scene. And for eagle-eyed listeners, yes, it is the same last name as the gentleman running for sheriff. Steve Spielberg was that man's nephew. Ladies and gentlemen, we're at Calvin Point, and what appears to be a pirate ship. They weren't alone on the beach that day. Several eyewitnesses were also interviewed. Here's a collection of those. Yeah, I saw the ship. It, it kind of came out of the harbor and just went out. It was huge. It was one of those pirate ships, like a, like a, like a, uh, like a, like a... Like a pirate ship at a fair, you know, the swinging ones, but in the, sh- in, in the ocean. It was weird. We were just sitting on the beach when the ship came out of nowhere. I'd had a few glasses of champagne, so I wasn't quite sure what I was seeing. But then everyone started yelling and pointing at it. Yeah, we definitely thought it was uh, an ad for something. Like, come to, the, come, to the, come to the fair. I don't know. It was cool, though. Finding the jewels did set off a hotly debated topic in town. Should the kids be able to keep that found money? Maritime salvage law essentially is in their favor, but in this case, the boat was an Astoria property. Here's some callers on a local morning radio show on WHAM 88.9 with Tad Wigan. Hey, Astoria! Tad Wigan here with you on W889 The Wham! We're talking the topic on everybody's mind. These kids digging up lost pirates' treasure. What we gotta know is, should these kids get to keep it? We're taking your calls. Cindy from a story. You're on the air with Tad. Hey, Tad. First time caller, long time listener. I just wanted to chime in and say that these kids went through a lot to get these jewels. And there's no way they should have them taken from them. Lots of opinions out there. You ask me, I play playground rules. Finders, keepers. <laughs> Sean Lauper from Astoria up next. What do you got for me, bud? Hey, Tad. I just gotta say, playground rules don't really apply in a court of law. These kids stole property that doesn't belong to them. And they shouldn't be able to just do what they want with it. Keep those calls rolling in, folks. We're going to Helicopter Hank with the eye in the sky for traffic. Now, we're going to play you a clip from WTL8, recorded moments after the children were found on the beach. We'd just like to remind you, as we said up front, this story has changed somewhat over the years. But there's been one detail that no one has ever been able to corroborate, that there was a giant octopus near the Inferno. The octopus was We're not sure why Data said this, and in interviews over the years, no one has ever mentioned the octopus again. But it's one of our favorite details of the story, and we felt like we had to share. It's really a perfect example of having a kid tell you a story. Like their adventures weren't grand enough without that extra octopus. Of course, that's not where our story ends. Not entirely, anyway. The Inferno went out to sea, but after having been abandoned for three centuries, it wasn't wholly seaworthy anymore. Just under a mile from where it launched, it went under, scattering its treasures to the deep. Several salvage missions were launched, but none were ever able to bring back more than a small handful of jewels or gold. Based on the descriptions from the kids, we know there was likely a massive fortune lost to the seas. But perhaps One-Eyed Willie was only willing to give up the treasure to a worthy adversary, one who'd never say die, and only the Goonies were good enough. Like all good local legends, we'll truly never know. 
but it has inspired a lot of businesses in the local area. Here's a local ad we heard a bunch of times while we were reporting. Hi, I'm Two-Eyed Willie, the great-great-great-grandson of the famous pirate One-Eyed Willie. Pirating ain't so lucrative in the 21st century, so I'm doing the next best thing. Here at Cash for Doubloons, I give you cash for your doubloons. It's that simple. Say, Willie, I have this old gold necklace. Will you give me cash for it? If it's attached to a Spanish coin from the 1500s, then sure! But, Willie, I don't have any doubloons, and I need cash now. That's no problem. Simply triangulate the crash site of my great-great-great-grandfather, One-Eyed Willie's boat, the Inferno, rent or buy some scuba gear, charter a boat, find his boat, swim down to it, navigate the labyrinthian structure, find yourself some doubloons that don't belong to One-Eyed Willie, retrieve them, bring them to me, and I'll give you cash. What could be easier? Can I get cash for this gold coin? Is it a doubloon? It's from Dave and Buster. Then no! What about this gold tooth? What part of doubloon are you not understanding? Why doubloons? Because that's the URL I bought. So go to cashfordoubloons.com. That's cash, F-O-U-R, doubloons.com. I think you meant .com. That's what I said. Or come to our brick and mortar location at the Astoria Strip Mall between Fratelli Brothers Pizza and the Truffle Shuffle Dance Studio and Ice Cream Shop. Here at Two-Eyed Willies, your doubloons are good enough for cash. I love that they were able to find a way to combine ice cream and dancing into one business. Really good ice cream, too. Visit if you're in Astoria. After saving their homes, the Goonies have mostly stayed in touch, Bran tells us. Though these days, they've scattered across the country and mostly keep in touch digitally. That golf course in Astoria never did expand. In fact, the owners of it eventually sold the property to the city, frustrated with their inability to capitalize on expanding. It's now a beautiful public course with views overlooking the harbor. This has been Dissection, a chum sum of this production. Thank you for listening. Brad Walsh, we'd like to end with some thank yous to WDT80s and WTL8 for their archival clips, and to the city of Astoria, go Astoria, and all of its residents who are kind and forthcoming to us in reporting this story. We do have some just quick plugs. You can find us at dissectingthe80s.com for pretty much anything you'd ever want to know about the show. Uh, Hall of Fame is up there. We just added two new members of it in Leah Thompson and Patrick Swayze. And their profiles will be up there shortly, or if they're not there already. Uh, you can find more about us on all the social media platforms. It's facebook.com slash dissectingthe80s. Uh, you can also reach us most easily on Twitter. I'm on there pretty much constantly. It's twitter.com slash dissectomania or at dissectomania if you use the app. Uh, we're going to do some quick thank yous here, but uh, that's how to get a hold of us if you want any more dissecting the 80s in your life. Also, please rate and subscribe. Mm-hmm. Rate the show on iTunes. If you do it, we'll read it on the air. It really does. I know this sounds ridiculous. I know you hear it on other podcasts if you listen to them, but it really does make a huge difference for us if you review the show. So please do that. Please, please, please do that. It's really not hard. It takes less than a minute if you're using an iPhone. And if you aren't, then use your computer. But it's so fast and easy. And we'll read it, and it makes a big difference for us. So please do that. Um, We have to do some thank yous here. So we're going to rattle off a a list of some names here. This is all of the folks who helped us out in producing this kind of wacky scripted episode of Dissecting the 80s as a Radiolab thing. First off, uh, Sarah Rosenshine, who wrote the 
Two-Eyed Willie Cash for Doubloons ad and did the voice in there. Ben Dean, who voiced Benjamin Littlepage, if you want reasonably priced music lessons in Philadelphia, look up Ben Dean Music Lessons. Yep, Ben is a rather cool dude. Dean with an E. D-E-A-N-E. Yep. I should, realized I <laughs> should have I'm going to definitely put that. him in the, in the notes of this episode. It'll be on, the ben, his web address will be there and on our website so that you can link to it. But we also need to thank our mom for jumping in there. Thanks so much. Getting involved. Thanks, Ma. Chris Long and Zay Luis Teixeira, who you guys heard on our Streets of Fire episode, and been getting some good feedback on that. So thanks for, for sharing, those of you who have chimed in. We'd like to thank our brother Gig and his fiance Emily. I also would like to thank John Bennett. Thank you, John, for stepping up last minute and replacing somebody who dropped out of this. John is one of the people behind Mondo Baltimore, one of my favorite events in the city. It is the first Thursday of every month at the Wind Up Space, which is the same spot that hosted us at the Baltimore Podcast Festival. They show really awesome, weird wonderful silly movies mondo baltimore on facebook will have all the details m-o-n-d-o mondo baltimore and nathan and oscar aravis thank you to all those fine folks check out our website we'll put links to their stuff where it's applicable but thank you to everybody for helping us out and thanks to all of you for listening and sharing this episode you just listened to and loved with all of the people who made Goonies and NPR on Twitter. Maybe, maybe get it all. Maybe Chad, maybe Jad Abumrod will retweet this and make my day forever. <laughs> or Sean Astin. Who knows? Let's go crazy. Thank you, thank you, thank you so very much to all the folks who chipped in and did some voice stuff for us. Uh, we really appreciate people helping us out. Super appreciated. Don't you forget about me. <laughs> Dissecting the 80s is a chum sum of this production. Did you, you ever hear the story about Josh Roman and uh, they, they wanted to not reveal the pirate ship to the kids? Yeah. And uh, they said, okay, everybody come into the water backwards and then we're going to have you dunk your heads and then pop out and then turn around and see the pirate ship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. working on it for three months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's beautiful. Yeah. Full, full size. Yeah. Josh, everybody does it, comes out wonder face. They want to get the actual reaction. The Spielberg face, yeah. Josh dips out and he goes, Holy fucking shit! <laughs> Blows the tank. Like fucking... Uh, Donald just goes, Cut! Oh, it's not what a Goonie says. That's amazing. Yeah, that was a great story. Oh, that's awesome. I love that story. That's like, the, when you said um, Josh Rowland, I was like, oh man. <laughs> so, if you're not familiar with ASMR, so I, think wraps up, like, uh, I will give you... I'll give you a little example. It's when you would say, so I have some papers. All right. I'm deeply uncomfortable. I really don't care for that. <laughs> and I would like that never to be a thing. Have you, have you, but yeah, I know. I don't right? like it. <laughs> it it's it's it, weird. It's, a, it's an acquired taste. The, the thing taste. that everyone likes about it is exactly the thing that I don't like. Like, it gives me the heebie-jeebies, but not like, ooh, pleasant tingles. It's like, oh. Wait, people like, it gives people heebie-jeebies? Like, and that's why yeah, they like it? It's like, it's like, people describe it the way it feels to have fingernails traced up your back. Like, and I'm oh. just like, I hate that too. I would not. I like that. I don't like, but I don't like ASMR. Well, I don't like any of it. I'm not judging you for liking it. It's just not for me. So if you could never do that again for the rest of your life, that would be super duper triple cool. I mean, we'll see. Uh, so yeah, 